Good morning. This morning's passage comes from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 13 to 22, and chapter 4, 12 to 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. And when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from, your, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is God's true word. Peter's words here in this portion of his letter echoes the words of his master Jesus, who many years earlier had said these words on his famous sermon on the mountainside, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It was in that context, right after those words, that Jesus of Nazareth likened his followers to salt and to light. It was in that context, right after Jesus said, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness sake and because of faith in me, he then went on to say, you, by the way, are the salt of the earth. You, by the way, are the light of the world. You, so we see how the Lord Jesus connected suffering for him with your ability to be salty and tasteful in a bland world, with your ability to be light in a dark world. And so Peter shows us in this passage, like his Lord, decades later, that suffering in faith produces two fruits. Really, when, as a Christian, when you are suffering because, when you are in a difficult position, because of your faith, because of following Jesus, two fruits are produced. There are two effects upon your life and upon your circumstances and the people around you. The first is witness and the second is joy. Those are the two fruits that we see in what Peter's saying throughout chapters 3 and 4. We, uh, Kate didn't read all of it for you, but she, she got the gist of it. Actually, suffering is 
a great witness. And you may not like me for saying this, but suffering is also a great joy. Suffering is a great witness and suffering is even a great joy. And what I want to talk to you today, I want to talk to you about three things. The witness of suffering, the joy of suffering, and then finally, the Lord of suffering. The witness of suffering, suffering allows you to be a witness in such a way as a Christian that it highlights the gospel. The witness of suffering highlights the gospel. Now remember, Peter has been talking about Christians being lights in the darkness. And that your light begins to emanate out as you first own your new identity as a stranger, an alien, a refugee on this planet. As a child of your new heavenly father who has adopted you in love and given you an amazing, indestructible inheritance. Peter says we begin to shine as lights as we begin to own that new identity, as we begin to love each other, as we begin to respect all forms of authority in this world, in our lives, and as we pursue healthy marriages as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what the the first three chapters have been all about. And now Peter turns to suffering. Suffering meaning enduring tragedy, enduring persecution because of your Christian faith, enduring injustice of any kind, great or small, because of your Christian faith. Suffering in all those ways is also, Peter says, a witness, is also a light. I remember during my college days, I was ridiculed because I didn't want to go along with a plot to steal the answers to a final exam uh, from one of our professor's offices. It was music, literature, and styles, basically music history. It was a difficult final. I was in a study group. There were about 10 of us. And we were studying together for about two weeks. And we had a great time. It was like a community group, like a small group, except it was a bunch of non-Christian musicians. And uh, I, w- I was there. And I was a Christian. We, we were getting along. We, be- we all became so close because we studied. We studied. We studied for two weeks together almost every night in, in, in a friend's dorm room. About two days before the final exam, somebody got the bright idea to steal the answers to the final exam because he was on student government and he had a master key to the building. And he could get into our professor's room and find the test. And so people began thinking about it. And what erupted was a a group-wide debate over whether or not we should go and steal the answers to the exam. And the only reason it was a group-wide debate was because I spoke up and thought it was a bad idea. And I said, we've, we've, we've worked hard all semester. We've studied hard. Why cheat ourselves by getting the answers? If, we, if we've worked so hard, why do we need to cheat? And because of the debate, the person who suggested it apologized and said, I really wish I had never offered that as a suggestion. And the group decided not to endorse uh, that campaign. But there was one guy in the group who was arguing vehemently that we go and steal the answers. And he kept saying to me, do you understand we deserve to do well on this test because we studied so hard? So getting the answers, we deserve getting the answers because we've worked so hard. 
That was his argument. But the group decided, no, we're not going to steal the answers. That guy, I think I had another one or two years left of college. That guy never forgave me. He was so upset with me that I botched the whole plan up. And Peter, uh, Peter sheds light on this dynamic. Maybe you've been persecuted severely, you know, within hours of your life. Or maybe you've lost a job. Or maybe you've lost a friend or even a spouse because of your faith. Or maybe it was just simple study group politics like I'm describing to you. The point is, Peter captures this dynamic when he speaks in verses 4 through 6. Now, we didn't read this part of the passage to you today, but buried in this, uh, this line of talk uh, is what Peter says in verses 4 to 6. Speaking of those who are not Christians, they say, he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, this is what Peter means when he talks about suffering for righteousness. Okay, this is suffering for righteousness. John Calvin put it this way. To suffer for righteousness means not only to submit to some loss or disadvantage in defending a good cause, but also to suffer unjustly when anyone is innocently in fear among men on account of the fear of God. Now, I probably need to put that into conventional English for us. This is what Calvin was saying. Living in an out-of-this-world way, as children of your heavenly Father, living in an out-of-this-world way will draw criticism from the world's people. Now, we have to be careful, Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. We have to be very careful in the name of living and suffering for righteousness sake, for Jesus sake. He says, if you're always being persecuted, you're probably obnoxious. And if you're, if you're never being persecuted, you're probably a coward. If you are always being persecuted, if, if you go from church to church or from friendship to friendship and, and that friendship ends in a conflict, they just don't see things your way and you've just got to move on. If you've never found an employer that you can work with because they always seem to be incompetent, there always seems to be a problem with that person. If you, if you can't talk about politics without somebody saying something nasty and rude to you, whether it's on Facebook or at the Thanksgiving dinner table, if you always find yourself in a position where you're feeling disadvantaged or criticized because you're a Christian, you're probably obnoxious and you need to tone it down. On the other hand, if you get along with everybody and no one ever has anything to say about your awkward lifestyle, about, about, your, about your, your just living, if no one ever, if you never rub anybody else the wrong way, and nobody ever criticizes you for anything you do or say, you're probably a coward. You're probably living in fear. And so Peter's response to this dynamic is found in verse 15. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice he says, always be prepared for when somebody asks you. 
He's not saying preach, debate, evangelize to everyone, everywhere, at every time, without any discernment. He's not saying that. What he is saying is always be ready to shed light on the source of your actions, on the source of your identity, on the reason why you are different, whether it's because they are drawn to the light in you and are excited about that, or whether they are repulsed by the light in you and criticize you and ignore you. Always be prepared. But he says, do it gently. Do it respectfully. And that's critical. One commentator puts it this way. Just because unbelievers are surprised at your behavior, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be surprised at theirs. And so our response should not be filled with confusion and bafflement and surprise when we see the world acting, according to Jesus, the way the world typically acts. You know... As a Christian, I have to realize that I was once counted as unrighteous, right? God once viewed me as unrighteous before him, justly deserving his wrath because of my rebellious heart, because of my rebellious life. And so I should not be surprised. I may be grieved. I may be upset. I may even be rightfully angry, but I should not be surprised at the way an unrighteous person acts and speaks because I know that I once was considered unrighteous in God's eyes. That's the demeanor that Peter is impressing upon Christians living in a more hostile environment than you and I. And so the grounds for this, the reason for everything that Peter is saying, you can find it in verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So here's why suffering in faith, okay, suffering in faith is a witness, is a light. Because when a Christian suffers, trusting in God, trusting in faith, the world sees the reality of a God who suffered for love and injustice. A God who suffered for reconciliation. And as you suffer in faith, not trusting in yourself, but trusting in God, the world sees the light of the gospel. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to open it up to you. Why would a loving God allow his children to suffer? You hear people in our society saying all the time, how can God be real? How can God be good? How can, be loving? How can God be loving because of human suffering and tragedy? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to tweak that question just a little bit for our purposes today. Why would a good and loving God allow his children, those that he considers his own, whom he's adopted, as Peter talks about, why would God allow them to suffer? Why would a good parent allow his children, whom he loves, to suffer? What do you think? To teach. The, the fan is so loud that I'm having a hard time hearing you. To teach, to teach us. Okay, to teach us. Builds character, okay? To teach us to build character, yeah. Suffering allows us to see things we wouldn't normally see when everything's going well. Suffering really opens our eyes. C.S. Lewis once said something about God speaking the loudest, God screaming 
in our suffering. He whispers in our, in our complacency, but he screams in our suffering. Good. Yeah. God allows us to participate in his suffering to somehow advance his kingdom. So you're opening up another line of thought, which is really important. You said to participate in God's suffering. So, you, so God suffers. Okay, that's an important idea. Yeah. Suffering humbles us so that we are willing to go to him. Yeah. Human sin is a factor, right? Suffering is related to human sin. And um, being victimized, you can be encouraged because Jesus was victimized. Other, did I see somebody? Yeah. If you have the faith to trust in his greater plan, it, it, it gives you endurance through your suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? It's a, way to test our faith. it's a way to test our faith. Suffering is a way to test our faith. A loving, even a good, loving human parent allows her or his child to endure some type of testing because of love. Right? Because you don't want your child relying on you for the rest of her life. Uh, the testing of that child will produce maturity. And that child needs maturity if, if he's going to make it. Uh, I want to encourage you. We have one of these. We have, this is mine. We have one of these on the book table. We have a great book table, by the way. Uh, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. Every chapter is written by somebody else on a different aspect of human suffering and Christian suffering. Uh, there's a great chapter in here. Uh, well, many people. Um, remember, Jim, some of you know who Jim Elliot is. Uh, well, uh, one of the guys who was killed on that missionary journey, uh, Nate Saint, his son Stephen Saint writes a chapter in here. And he's as bold as saying, I believe that God planned my dad's death. He didn't just let it happen, but he actually planned it. And he gets a lot of criticism for saying that. But the book points to the chapter in Peter that we're talking about today as the basis for its teaching. Take a look. Thanks, guys, for your answers. Um, the joy that suffering generates is a great gift. Suffering, suffering generates joy for the Christian. Peter goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think perhaps the surest proof that we belong to Jesus Christ is his presence in our trials. Maybe the, sh the most sure you will ever be that you belong to Jesus and his spirit is in you is knowing his presence in a tangible way while you are suffering in faith. 
I remember about eight years ago uh, in a hospital bed uh, waiting for surgery. I was in one of those holding rooms where they've got you hooked up to IV and you're just waiting to be operated on. And they tell you it'll be about a half an hour and you're in there for about two hours. And I did some reading. I did some praying. And I remember feeling uh, very much at a loss for what my life would look like when I woke up that afternoon. I remember thinking, I I don't know what my future is, don't know what my family's future is going to be. I don't know if when I wake up, I will be cancer free or if when I wake up, I will find out that the, the true diagnosis is worse than they originally told me. And I have a limited amount of time uh, with with my family. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you go, I don't know what's good. five year, five hours from now, a day from now, a month from now, my life may be completely different and I have no control over it. I remember turning to second Corinthians chapter 12, where where Paul uh, basically says, look, to keep me humble so that I wouldn't become arrogant because of all my responsibility and all the amazing things that have happened in my life. uh, God sent this thorn into my life. Paul called it his thorn of the flesh, something that was aggravating him and nagging at him. And Paul says, I basically asked the Lord Jesus to take it away from me. I was sick and tired of it. It was really holding me back. I asked him three times to take it away. And, and this is what Paul records in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about Jesus' answer to him. Jesus basically said to Paul three times, no. Has, he, has God ever said no to you for something? Jesus said to Paul three times, no. And Paul quotes what Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness exhausts our resources so that we are finally able to throw ourselves upon Jesus and rely on his resources. I have never known a more vivid expression of the presence of Christ in my life than in that moment on a hospital bed when when Jesus was, it was almost as if God, I didn't hear a voice, but it was as if God was saying, do you see what's happening? Do you see what I'm doing in you? Your faith is not a farce. It's not a joke. It's not a sham. It's real. You see how I'm with you right now. This is real. And I believe that's where joy truly comes from. Happiness, you've heard me say this, happiness is feeling blessed because of good circumstances. Joy is feeling blessed regardless of your circumstances. And perhaps the greatest source of joy is when you know that the Lord Jesus is with you as you share, as you share in the sufferings and the weakness that he knew as a man. And so at that point in my life, I adopted a new hymn as my testimony. Different phases of my life, I'll take a different hymn and say, that hymn sums me up for this decade or, or for this year. And it was Be Thou My Vision when I was a really young guy in college and seminary. But at that phase of my life, in my mid-30s, it, it, was, um, it was an old one by uh, Severus Gastorius. I love that name. Severus Gastorius, whate'er my God ordains is right, and particularly one of the last verses, whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. 
My father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. You freak out, don't you? When the carpet comes out from underneath you, you freak out when you have to suffer. You freak out when people malign you, even though you don't deserve it. You freak out when you're victimized, right? You don't like it. And you ask once, twice, three times, multiple times, God, I don't deserve this. This is a pain in the neck. Take it away. But he's not just saying, no, I won't. He's beaming at you. As you struggle in faith, your heavenly father, if you're a Christian, is beaming at you. He is so proud of you because in your struggle, you are becoming like his son, Jesus. And, and, and your growth process in your struggles, even if it's persecution, your growth process is a joy to him. Because you're growing up. C.S. Lewis said this about suffering in one of his letters. The suffering of innocent people is less of a concern or a problem to me than the suffering of the wicked. It sounds absurd, but I've met so many innocent sufferers who seem to be gladly offering their pain to God in Christ as a part of the atonement. So patient, so meek, even so at peace and so unselfish that we can hardly doubt they are being, as St. Paul says, made perfect by suffering. On the other hand, I meet selfish egoists who in suffering, it seems to produce only resentment. Hate, blasphemy, and more egoism. They are the real problem. Human history is so much the result of people making everybody else's life miserable because of how they've responded to their own suffering. Humanity fears suffering. Humanity even rages against suffering. Have you ever raged? Against your difficulties. We act surprised, don't we? And in our and in our ecstatic surprise state, we become angry as though our trials are abnormal, as though our trials are inconvenient, as though our trials are undeserved. But didn't Jesus say. And this is in John chapter 15, didn't Jesus say it to his to his followers if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he went on to say, no servant can be greater than his master. And so Peter says in verse 12 of chapter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In the original language, the concept of a fiery trial is, is this, that it, it's like a fire that quickly catches all around you. You know the idea of, of something happening, a toaster going amok, and all of a sudden, in the matter of minutes, your whole house is inflamed. That's what Peter's talking about. He goes, don't be surprised when that sort of thing happens in your life. Think of a forest fire while you are hiking in an arid climate. 
Now, an experienced backpacker hiking in the Sierra Nevada, not so much on the East Coast, right? It's kind of damp here. But an experienced backpacker in the Sierra Nevada mountains or in the forests of the Rockies in a very arid climate in the middle of July during a drought shouldn't be surprised if while they are hiking, a fire breaks out. Can you imagine the silliness of, of a hiker out in a drought in the Rockies in an arid place being shocked that a forest fire developed while, while he was hiking and complaining about all the fire when he was trying to enjoy nature? That sounds ridiculous. And that's Peter's point. Neither should the Christian be surprised in a world that Jesus did not regard as his own. Nor Peter tells you is your home. But ask yourself this, are you enslaved to comfort? Do you love your comfortable life? Do you love this world, the things that are in this world, that will stay in this world when you leave it? Because if the answer is yes, then, then you're going to live to avoid pain. You, your priority, right? the, the plans you make, the strategies you make, the ambitions you look after, the way you plan your, your, your money and, and your time off and your, your, your vacation and, and, and how you spend money and what you think about your career path, every, the relationships you commit to, the things that you're willing to do, okay? you're, you're going you're gonna to orchestrate everything so as to avoid pain. And avoiding pain makes it impossible to live as a chosen exile. Peter calls us chosen exiles. And if you live your life to avoid pain, I sometimes think of the American dream is learning how to avoid pain. If we can find a way to make money and medicine and careers and success allow us to avoid pain, well, that must be the pursuit of happiness. But what Peter's saying here is if you, if you live your life that way, you'll never have joy. You can't have joy because the source of your joy is drawing near to Christ to share in his sufferings as you suffer. But if we don't embrace our appointed suffering like Jesus embraced his, how can we become like him? How can we find joy as a Christian? But to know joy, Jesus has to become the Lord of your suffering. Not just the Lord of your life, the Lord of everything, even your suffering. Have you been wondering what Peter's point is in verses 19 through 22 when he goes into this seemingly random stream of consciousness and he starts talking about these imprisoned spirits back during the days of Noah and he starts talking about baptism and he talks about angels and authorities and powers and the flood? It, what, what in the world is he saying there? Well, it is, it's very related to, to what he's talking about. What he's saying there is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proclaimed victory to all of creation. To the demons, to spiritual, reality, to spiritual darkness in the spiritual realm, and to human wickedness. Now, during the days of Noah, eight people, Peter says, were saved in this ark by water. 
Okay. And that was a witness to both demonic presences, a demonic presence and a human presence, demonic wickedness and human wickedness in the days of Noah. And what Peter's saying is what happened in the days of Noah is exactly what's happening now. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a proclamation to human wickedness and to and to angelic wickedness that God wins. And it is a comfort to God's people, just like Noah, that he will save you, even in the midst of wickedness. Whether it's, whether it's Satan as a spiritual enemy and his influences and his forces attacking you and persecuting you. Or whether it is the result of human wickedness persecuting you, attacking you. Either way, God wins. And God preserves his people as he did in the days of Noah. And so Peter says in verses 14 and 15, actually, let me go back. The Apostle Paul made a similar point. It was just not as random and mysterious as Peter's point. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's demonic. Right? Those, that's not Caesar. Those means, that means spiritual authority. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that's really what Peter is saying. And so he goes on to say, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And this is the key. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Not just your example for good behavior and good living. Is Jesus the Lord of every facet of your life, even your suffering, even your struggles? See, that's, that's why you're so angry and baffled when you face difficulty, especially when you're being treated unfairly. You're so angry and baffled because maybe you're trying to be the Lord of your suffering. You're trying to Lord every situation in your life and not relying upon him. But he must be more than your example. He must, by faith, be your Lord, even in your difficulties. Jesus said in John chapter 16... In the world, you will have tribulation. It was kind of a promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Suffering is a great witness. It perhaps could be your greatest witness as a Christian. And it also becomes the source of great joy for you. We sang Martin Luther's words earlier. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. His kingdom is forever. One in this world knows suffering. I can say with confidence that everybody in this room, I don't care if you've suffered just a little bit, if you suffered a tremendous amount, everybody in a relative way understands suffering. And so does Jesus. The Christian can suffer differently because Jesus did. Christians are called to respond to suffering differently than the rest of the world does. And so Jesus, by his suffering, was a light. Now, in faith, you go be a light in your suffering. Don't allow your trials to make you doubt his goodness, but let your trials through faith, let your trials throw you at the feet of Jesus and share with him 
the suffering that he knows and share with him the joy that he knows that's produced because his suffering brought about your victory. And nobody and nothing can change that. Let's pray. Father, it is not in us, but it is in you. The power is in you to say that one single word will destroy Satan. One single word by you will judge all of human wickedness. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. Help us to remember that the word, that Jesus, the living word, is alive. And that he will make all wrongs right. Even the ones we are enduring now. Father, help us to not be obnoxious in our society. But help us to be respectful. Help us to be humble. And help us to always be prepared to share the reason for the hope that we have. And in our struggle and in our sufferings, even in injustice, help us to draw close to our Lord Jesus Christ in joy as lights for him. In his name, amen.